Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bazaar. I'm your host. That's B as in boy, I double Z A double R O. And you can find us on social media at Justin the Food Entrepreneur's on both Facebook and Instagram. Today, we'll be interviewing Choco Lottle of Atlanta, Georgia. Matt Wyan and his wife, Elaine Reed, are the owners. How are you doing today, Matt? Good. How are you? I'm doing very well. So, Matt, tell us a little bit about your your and your wife's background uh, and what led you up to owning your own chocolate uh, company. Well, uh, our backgrounds didn't have anything to do with food or entrepreneurship. Um, We uh, both had careers uh, prior to uh, starting the business together um, for about 10 or 12 years. Um, I was working in uh, progressive politics and Elaine was doing uh, nonprofit work with uh, international uh, aid and relief organizations uh, primarily. And uh, we um, got to a, a, a place where uh, we were both a little burned out on our work and um, we were trying to figure out you know, what we wanted to do with ourselves. <laughs> and um, we uh, had uh, one, uh, our son was already about three years old and she was pregnant with our second child and we decided uh, we were just going to kind of make a change and take a break. And we um, had a little bit of saved up but not a lot and we decided we would just kind of roll the dice and uh, go down to Costa Rica for uh, some indeterminate amount of time we had uh, when we were younger done some traveling uh, together and and separately uh, before we met and we kind of wanted the like the idea of sort of going down and having uh, we sort of figured we could do at least six months uh down in Costa Rica and kind of have some family time and kind of try to think about, you know, what we wanted to do with ourselves. And we thought maybe we'd figure out some way to stay in in Costa Rica longer. Um, And so we uh, waited actually until our daughter was born. And then she was about, we started putting things in motion to get ready for this. And then when she was about three or four months old, uh, we we all went down to a little town on the, uh, Caribbean side uh, of Costa Rica on the coast, uh, Puerto Viejo, a place where Elaine and I had been probably, you know, 10 years before, uh, had kind of gone through. And um, and we rented a little house kind of in the jungle there and sort of set up uh, shop. And, and while we were down there, we were on a really small budget and we um, would... Uh, go into town uh, to that little farmer's market there. We'd go in on the weekends and get our food. And the one thing we started, was sort of our little treat for ourselves, was we'd buy these little chocolate bars that were made by um, folks who, who were growing cacao and, and then processing it all the way to making the chocolate themselves. And these are little small 20-gram chocolate bars, but it was chocolate kind of unlike any chocolate we'd had before. It was just made with cacao and uh, organic cane sugar there was no uh, nothing else added to it no added cocoa butter or soy lecithins or, or other uh, kind of fillers um, and it was really um, different uh, I mean it was really good and it was um, we, we just it was sort of our treat uh, first though that's we get the kids to bed we'd be in a hammock and we'd share a little chocolate bar together 
and uh, kind of fell in love with it. And then we um, started learning more about the process of uh, how chocolate was made, where it came from. And at the time we went down, I didn't even know that, uh, you know, chocolate comes from the cacao tree and comes from this fruit and the whole process of how so the, the seeds are, are turned into a um, uh, something that can be processed in the chocolate. And started learning that process from the folks down there that were making it. And um, at some point, this you know, we realized we weren't going to be able to stay in Costa Rica forever, but this, this light bulb went off. Well, hey, we can bring this back to Atlanta and try to build a business around this. And so uh, that was kind of the, the start of everything. But um, yeah, up until that point, uh, as I said, we, we did not, you know, come from entrepreneurial families or, or have uh, uh, experience with that or, or in food, really. Um, so that's kind of where we started. And so when you guys came back from Costa Rica, you jumped right into this endeavor. So like, you're, this is something we need to bring back to the United States. This is something that we can really find success with in Atlanta. I mean, how did you come up with the decision to, to do it? I mean, because you have your own shop now, you're obviously producing quite a bit of chocolate for people and, and it's doing well. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about the conversation you and your wife had or, or how you guys decided you were going to, I mean, cause it's not a small yeah. endeavor. Sure. Well, you know, as I said, we didn't come from entrepreneurial families, but we're both um, pretty risk tolerant. <laughs> and, and, and also when we sort of, uh, I think kind of make a decision, we sort of go all in on it. And, and so it, and that's kind of what happened with us just going down to Costa Rica in the first place. That was sort of a, a, a kind of off the, off the wall uh, decision, but kind of once we decided we wanted to do it, we started sort of putting everything in place to do that. And so, you know, when we were down there, we realized this was something we wanted to do while we were still down there. We, we started, you know, sort of, um, started researching it we saw that this being the bar chocolate movement was was growing already in the united states i mean this was 2013 when we were down in costa rica and there were already some bean bar chocolate companies that um had been around for you know a, a couple of them that had been around for you know, almost a decade at that point but it was it was growing and there were there were more and more of them popping up um and so uh you know we also we live uh right downtown Atlanta um, and in the area which was experiencing a lot of redevelopment and just around the corner from us, we knew that there was this, when we left, there was a old warehouse that was being converted into a food hall. And so uh, we kind of, it all, all the wheels gear started turning and um, we uh, thought, well, we could bring this back and kind of create this little micro factory in this food hall. Because one of the things we, we really liked about the bean to bar chocolate uh, itself and the whole sort of movement was that it was bringing a lot of transparency to chocolate and to, um, you know, most people, I think if you ask the average American, where does chocolate come from? It's like, it comes from a factory. <laughs> you know, no one really, not, not a lot of people really know the history of it, what it is, um, or, or much about uh, the, this food that, that we consume all the time. And so... We wanted to kind of show people uh, chocolate comes comes from a tree that, that, that you know, that explain the process and then actually people be able to actually see us making chocolate 
uh, from the bean all the way to finished chocolate bars in our little uh, in our little micro factory. And we sort of felt like as we did research, we kind of saw uh, you know other places in the states were starting uh, you know to do this, and um, you know we felt like we could. Uh, start there. I mean, the idea was we would start with a little kind of public micro factory and, and start doing retail first. And that, you know, as we grew, we could um, uh, hopefully eventually one day have a factory factory because our, our place at uh, Crog Street Market is only about our entire uh, space is 400 square feet, but our, our production space is only about 200 or so square feet. And we're now making um, you know, probably more than 10 tons of chocolate a year uh, out of that 200 square feet. So we're, uh, we're sort of running up against our, uh, our capacity there. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, that was kind of uh, our starting point. And, and so we actually uh, kind of from the jungle of Costa Rica, we, uh, we got on Skype and, you know, called the, the broker for the uh, Crock Street market as they were you know still under development and, basically completely uh, BS them that we were this uh, chocolate company. We were down in Costa Rica uh, sourcing cacao. We sounded like we knew what we were doing and, you know, we wanted to, this was our concept and, um, and, and they didn't really vet us at all. <laughs> uh, so we sort of, you know, we're faking it until we made it and, uh, and we're able to sign on uh, at the, in the food hall. We really felt like that, was a good uh, location for us. It was going to have high foot traffic. There were going to be a lot of other, um, you know, well-known chefs in Atlanta and, and, and kind of foodies uh, going there. We wanted to really bring this kind of uh, concept of an elevated chocolate uh, to Atlanta. And we kind of felt like that was the right location for it. Yeah. I love that actually. And just so the audience knows, you made a comment about, bean to bar market um and, and what's going on there in that trend could you tell us a little bit about that sure so you know being the bar uh you know the i guess just to start from the beginning you know what we do is we make uh, chocolate from cacao beans so we import uh cacao from central and south america from east africa um and and we roast the beans uh we crack them we um stone grind them and it's a process that once we get the beans takes about a week to go from you know a raw bean to a finished uh, chocolate bar and uh you know just to go back even beyond that uh chocolate comes from the cacao tree and so it's actually it's a fruit it grows in these uh the the tree produces these uh, big really colorful pretty uh pods and inside the pods are um cacao seeds that are covered in a, a fruit pulp and uh, what we call cocoa beans are actually the seeds of this fruit and so what happens is uh, you know farmers will harvest the pods they'll crack open and, and pull out the pulp and the seeds uh, that then uh, the seeds then get fermented in their own fruit pulp and so this the um, and farmers will collect a bunch of this together and ferment in big boxes together and then uh, that process usually takes five to seven or eight days. And then the, the fermented, uh, we'll then call them beans, get laid out on drying beds similar to like coffee um, and will dry over the course of another um, 10 to 12 days usually depending on the weather. 
And, uh, and then at that point, you've got um, raw cocoa beans that are ready for, uh, for processing. So uh, the bean to bar uh, movement in the States is, is as I said, uh, you know, when we started in 2013, I'm not sure how many bean to bar makers there were. I think it was still probably under 100, but it was growing pretty quickly. I mean, I'd say we were in sort of maybe the, the second or third wave of, of uh, makers that were popping up and and now i think it's over 200 or so uh but uh there's you know historically um you know people think of kind of european chocolate as kind of the fine chocolate and i i, I think that what's happening is a, a very similar to what's happened with um beer over the last you know 20 or so years where you know in the 80s or early 90s you know uh U.S. wasn't really known for its beer, and kind of the best beers were considered to come from Europe. And then we sort of, in the U.S., kind of had this microbrewery um, uh, uh, explosion, and and then European makers actually started, and, and around the world, people started actually looking at the U.S. as uh, producing some of the best beers around. I think the same thing is actually happening in chocolate right now. That um, we, you know, people talk about Swiss chocolate and and these European chocolate, but there's no there's no cacao that grows in Europe. It only grows within 20 degrees of the equator. And so, um, the, so it's just, you know, the, now, uh, the American small batch chocolate makers, bean to bar chocolate makers are kind of going back and, and really focusing on buying, uh, kind of the best quality beans in the same way that, uh, coffee, this kind of third wave coffee over the last 10 or 15 years has really improved, um, the, the quality of coffee in the U.S. Similar thing is happening now in chocolate. We're going, we're looking for the best beans we can find, and then we're processing them. We're, we're doing, you know, small batches, and we're really paying a lot of attention to the roast profiles and to, um, in, in the way that we make chocolate, uh, we don't add anything. To, so we have a line of single-origin bars that are just cacao and organic cane sugar, and we don't add anything else to the bar. So um, a lot of industrial chocolate, uh, they're, going to be adding uh, definitely additional cocoa butter, uh, some kind of lecithin, usually like a soy lecithin, and a lot of times uh, adding uh, even other vegetable fats and things to the bars. Um, and so our, our single origin lineup of bars, it's, it's uh, from 70% uh, cacao all the way up to actually we have a 100% uh, cacao bar, is uh, made with beans just from one origin and then uh, adding... Uh, just organic cane sugar, except for the case of our 100% bar, which is just pure uh, cacao from Nicaragua. Um, so that's kind of the what the the bean to bar movement in the U.S. is doing, and now we're starting to see that actually other uh, countries are starting to pick up this kind of small batch bean to bar process is actually now spreading to Europe and to Asia and to other places, but kind of originated in the states over the last uh, 20 years, but really kind of taking off in the last 10 years. And so, I so actually, is it a tree that the cocoa? See, this is where you said most Americans don't know where it comes from. And and being in food as long as I have, I've never we we don't mess with chocolate of any sorts. Um, so, do the trees are the, are they trees? Yeah, they are trees. They're really. I mean, I would encourage folks to go and Google cacao tree images because they're really interesting looking trees. They. Um, the, the pods are about, um, you know, they vary in size, uh, 
but they're they're kind of oblong. They're different shapes depending on the varieties, uh, but they're uh, some kind of pointy tips, and uh, they're really pretty colors. They'll range from, usually they'll start off as, as green, and then as they ripen, they'll turn into yellows or purples or uh, even kind of blues. I mean, there's a real rainbow of colors that the pods turn into, and um, they'll grow uh, both from kind of the branches, how you would think of as like a fruit tree, but they'll also just grow right off of the trunk of the tree as well. And so the tree produces uh, thousands of these really pretty little flowers, and then only about 5% of them actually will develop then into pods. Um, and, you know, it takes harvesting a bunch of pods to uh, 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 to take the seeds and the pulp out. And usually what the, the places that we work with are uh, usually co-ops of farmers because, uh, you know, the uh, farmers aren't, as an individual farmers, not able to uh, produce and, and be able to export, you know, a container load of cacao. And so uh, they'll typically bring the uh, wet pulp and seeds uh, to a central fermentary that the co-op is running They'll all kind of put there. Uh, it's called uh, in baba. Baba is the term usually used for for like wet beans, um, the the pulp around the beans. And so they'll bring that all to the central fermentary, put it in these big wood boxes where they the, the seeds ferment, the beans ferment together in their own uh, pulp. And so the sugars from the pulp are what the bacteria are feeding off of. It kind of jump starts the whole uh, fermentation process. And so as these um, uh, the, the pulp and beans are in the boxes. It'll, the, the ferment starts up. The, they'll heat up to about you know, 48 degrees Celsius over the course of a couple of days. Uh, every day or so, the beans will be turned over, uh, maybe from one box to another, just so that they mix and the fermentation kind of happens evenly and doesn't you don't get like a really hot ferment in the middle of the box, but not giving as much ferment on the outside of the box. And uh, so then after about... Um, as I said, about you know five to seven or eight days, you get a complete ferment, and then uh, they start the process of drying the beans from that point. It's, it's an incredible thing. I mean, you, it's just you don't think about how much of labor and things and time goes into the farming process before you even get the bean, and let alone before it's even produced into chocolate. Uh, so. I mean, I'm just, so the trees can only grow in, in warm climates. I mean, you talked, I believe you said East Africa as well as Central and South America. So those are the only places that the cacao uh, tree can grow. Well, it grows within 20 degrees of the equator, almost all over the world. And so actually the vast majority of cocoa in the world comes from uh, West Africa, from West Africa. Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana is uh, where most of the industrial, most of the chocolate you probably, you know, had as a kid, uh, uh, the stuff that's in Hershey's and, and kind of industrial chocolate is almost all coming out of West Africa. There's different varieties of cacao, and um, the, the, the cacao that's grown in West Africa is typically not considered to be a, a fine flavor variety. And then a lot of it also has to do with the, pro- the, the ferment and the drying is really important to the finished uh, flavor of the cacao. And so a lot of times in industrial chocolate, uh, uh, sometimes they're buying beans that haven't even been fermented, which is kind of dried or there's really uh, bad ferments done. And But, you know, the, for industrial chocolate, they don't really care so much because it's similar to sort of industrial coffee. They'll, they'll 
roast the beans at high temperatures and put a bunch of milk and sugar and other stuff into the chocolate and it doesn't really matter so much um, the quality of the bean. Um, and so that's kind of uh, the history of, of, of what's happened with chocolate uh, over the last, you know, 100 years. And, and then in the, in the bean to bar movement's really going back in a similar way as, you know, what has happened with coffee over the last 20 years and saying, you know, we want to um, spend a lot of time finding the best beans and also working directly with the farmers. There's a lot of emphasis on, on placed on uh, ensuring that uh, equity kind of through the supply chain. So uh, farmers in West Africa who are selling to industrial makers, they're, they're usually selling to like three or four middlemen, and they're really making next to nothing for their labor. And uh, there's a lot of attention in the, in the bean-to-bar world on, uh, making sure that there is uh, kind of equity through the supply chain. We travel down to origin, um, and uh, we've been working especially in Peru with a co-op of farmers down there for the past four or five years and are, are focused on, on trying to get to a place where all of our beans are coming through direct trade. We're paying uh, fair trade or above fair trade prices for all the beans that we get, but um, we want to uh, be buying directly from, from uh, farmers whenever we can. And so... We've been working with a co-op down there and, and we go down and uh, meet with them during the harvest and kind of are there as, as that's happening uh, and, and then negotiating contracts directly with them. Uh, and we're going down with a group of uh, three or four other chocolate makers uh, because in the same way that the farmers are too small to be able to kind of export on their own, we're even, at, you know, we're doing, as I said, about 10 or 12 tons of chocolate a year. We're still too small to really buy a container load of uh, cacao on our own. And so um, the one thing that's really been nice about the uh, being a bar chocolate community in the U.S. is it's very collaborative. It's not um, it's not competitive. We all kind of feel like a rising tide with small boats. And so uh, folks are willing to work together and we travel together and uh, buy beans together and ship them into the U.S. And then once they get here, we'll kind of ship them to our each, each of our little uh, factories. So, um so that's sort of where, you know, the, it, it's a process, I think, that we're, we're all, you know, focused on, uh, uh, you know, improving uh, the uh, supply of both fine quality cacao uh, to chocolate makers in the U.S., but also ensuring that, uh, you know, more attention is put on the work the farmers do. I think telling the story of how these beans get to a place that can actually be made into chocolate is really important because, like you said, most people don't know the amount of labor that goes into it on the farm side. And then also making sure that we're able to pay a fair price uh, for the cacao that, that we're, we're buying. And so, I mean, are you literally then getting container loads through, I don't know, Port of Savannah, for example, since you guys are in Georgia, of, of the beans? Yeah, we actually, most of our, uh, the beans, we buy actually go through New Jersey right now because, like I said, we're buying with other makers. And um, uh, and so they'll go into New York, New Jersey. Uh, there's a another uh, bean bar chocolate maker, uh, Raka Chocolate. There's actually really, they're based in Brooklyn. They're actually really interesting. They don't roast their cacao before um, they make it into chocolate. And so it has a really unique flavor. Um and that you can find them in a lot of Whole Foods around the country. They're a very kind of wholesale business, uh, focused business. Um, and so we'll buy beans with Raka. Uh, French Broad Chocolate is up in Asheville. 
And uh, Dan and JL, the owners of French Broad Chocolate, are just amazing people. And, and they actually, we didn't know this at the time, but they lived in the same little town in uh, Puerto Viejo in Costa Rica that we did about seven years before us. And they had uh, set up a little restaurant there called Bread and Chocolate, and which is still in existence. If you go to Puerto Viejo, you can go to Bread and Chocolate. And they, they had sold it to a friend before they left Costa Rica and moved back up to Asheville. And um, they've been really supportive and, and taught us a lot. And, and they we buy beans with them. And then uh, Parliament Chocolate out in California as well, uh, in Redlands, uh, California. Um, and, and so... Uh, Typically, the container load will, will come leave from Peru uh, or sometimes actually go by uh, land up to Colombia and then leave from there and go to New Jersey and then we'll kind of ship down uh, to us in Atlanta. Uh, we buy beans from Nicaragua as well. Um, we have beans from Ecuador, uh, beans from Madagascar. We've had beans from Vietnam, um, Guada- uh, um, from Trinidad, um, and, and a couple of uh, Bolivia. Yeah, as well. And so we try, we're always kind of, um, we want to establish long-term relationships with the farmers that we work with, but we also are, are uh, occasionally do limited edition bars because we like the idea of introducing a new uh, bean. And I think one of the things I guess I haven't mentioned yet is that the thing that's interesting about uh, doing this kind of single origin uh, chocolate is that similar to coffee, beans from different regions that are either different varieties or have different growing climates or we're fermented differently will have different flavors. So our uh, Madagascar single origin chocolate is a really fruity, bright chocolate. The uh, cacao from Ecuador is uh, doesn't have a lot of fruit notes. It's a much more kind of cocoa-y, kind of s'mores-like kind of chocolate flavor. Um, so you get these really interesting um, differences in chocolate. Uh, just from the bean itself and when we don't mess with it when we just do with cacao and organic cane sugar and we we also do a line of uh, flavor inclusions um you know, we have a coconut milk dark chocolate and we have we do you know almond and sea salt and we have some uh, coffee bar and and other flavors but uh kind of the thing that we first fell in love with was this idea of these single origin bars that really have these unique flavors just based on the on the origin of the bean and so on that topic, um, one, uh, can you tell the audience um, what's your website and where can they find you on social media? Sure. Our, our website is chocolatlechocolate.com, and chocolatl is spelled X-O-C-O-L-A-T-L. So it's X-O-C-O-L-A-T-L chocolate.com. And uh, we, and uh, I think our Instagram uh, is the same. Our Facebook is uh, maybe chocolate, small batch chocolate. Um, and so you can find us there. We, um, when we started um, the, at Crock Street uh, Market, our, uh, you know, Elaine and I were the only chocolate makers and we were, we were working until, you know, two or three or four in the morning, you know, uh, making chocolate and hand wrapping chocolate bars. And we were just kind of making enough chocolate to sell out of the shop. And over the last four years, we've been able to get some additional help. (laughs) So we're now, you know, we've got the online store and we started to do wholesale about two years ago. And so you can also find us in, uh, um, we're in a bunch of states now and and kind of mostly small boutique shops um, uh, and kind of all over the country. And, uh, but we've, uh, we're also here in Georgia in uh, fresh markets uh, around the state here in Georgia. And I just started in some uh, of the whole foods here in Georgia as well. 
Um, but we're really looking to expand uh, our production capabilities so that we can uh, kind of continue to grow our, our uh, wholesale market over the next couple of years. And so t- tell us uh, some of the varieties of the bars, and you mentioned some of the specialty bars you've done. Uh, tell us about some of those as well. So if I, I go online, you know, what type of bars do you guys have? What flavor profiles? And you mentioned like the single origin bars. You know, so uh, obviously you sure. probably can't remember all of them, but maybe you can if you're involved in every day. I don't know. It's hard for me to remember <laughs> everything we produce, but yeah. some people can. <laughs> sure. So, you know, we have the lineup of single-origin bars, which are all dark chocolate. They're, you know, range from 70% dark chocolate uh, up to uh, an 85% and even 100%. Um, and and then we have a line of our flavor inclusions, which are, are really also uh, lean on the dark chocolate side. We have uh, our most popular bar is uh, called Kiss Mermaids, and it's a 60% uh, dark coconut milk chocolate. Uh, with vanilla-infused sea salt and uh, cacao nibs sprinkled on the back of the bar. Um, we have our uh, uh, Go Nuts bar, which is a uh, 68% uh, Peruvian dark chocolate with uh, roasted almonds and vanilla-infused sea salt. Uh, we've got uh, Commuter bar, which is a bar that we did with a local coffee roaster here in Atlanta. It's a 60% uh, dark coconut milk with coffee from... Um, uh, uh, from uh, whole coffee uh here in atlanta and uh we've uh we uh, actually won a good food awards in 2017 for our single origin peruvian uh, uh bar that was a 70 percent bar and then last year we won uh, another good food awards for um our ripple effect bar which is a uh 60 percent uh uh, dark chocolate with a uh, blood orange infused olive oil, uh, raspberries uh, ground into the chocolate, and then uh, smoked uh, cacao nibs, applewood smoked cacao nibs sprinkled on the back with uh, some uh, raspberries as well. And that was a bar that and it came out of a collaboration that we were doing with a local brewery here in Atlanta. Uh, Wild Heaven Brewing had um, used some of our nibs and, and and smoked them and used them in this uh, Russian imperial stout that they made with a bunch of raspberries. So we kind of took that concept and tried to sort of work it back into a chocolate bar. And we were going to do it as, as kind of a limited edition, but uh, we ended up winning the Good Food Award for it. So then we decided we'd just keep it as <laughs> a regular rotation. Um, and we've got, uh, you know, we got several other uh, bars as well. We do a one we call Soul Rebel, which is a dark coconut milk chocolate with uh, Jamaican jerk spices. So it's got some, and it's really kind of interesting, kind of savory uh, chocolate bar. Um, it, it's uh, some people you kind of either love it or, or hate it, <laughs> and uh, I like it. It's actually a good chocolate bar to to have with like a cold beer, um, which is which is not always the case with chocolate. So. Um, uh, and you can see the full lineup of our bars uh, on our on our website, uh, on our online store there. And so, what is your favorite bar? Um, you know, it it varies kind of seasonally. Um, you know, I, like I, I mentioned, the the Soul Rebel bar, the the one with the uh, kind of Jamaican jerk spices, is, is kind of a good spring summertime bar. As I said, when, if, if you, with like a cold beer, I really like our our single origin bars. I mean, that's kind of as I said, that's sort of where we st- that was our starting point and the thing that first really got us excited about this idea of making chocolate this way was this idea that 
you know, different beans from different regions were going to have these different flavors. That was just a really interesting thing to me. And so our Madagascar bar, as I mentioned, is really fruity. And I kind of like having a piece of that and then having a piece of our Ecuador bar, which is totally different flavor. And you really get the, it really drives home the point that, uh, that these, uh, you know, the, the beans, the trees, the region really have an impact on the flavor of the chocolate. Um, so, you know, those, those off the, off the top of my head, those be some of the, some of my favorites, but it, it varies depending on the, on, on the weather outside <laughs> time of year. And so the, you guys are, are now entrepreneurs, right? You, you come back from Costa Rica and you, you dove right into this business and it's just obviously the knowledge and, and the, the experience you've had and now in cocoa beans and, and the trees and the relationships you're, you're building all over the world, but so you come back, I mean, what are, were some of the hardest things about opening up your own business? Well, um, we didn't, uh, have a lot of money <laughs> when we started. Um, we were, uh, you know, we ran a bunch of credit card debts, which we're still, still working on, <laughs> um, so making progress on, um, you know, so there's the sort of financial challenge, you know, banks aren't, you know, really into giving loans to, to, uh, people who are just starting businesses. We were able to get a, a small business loan from, uh, invest Atlanta, which is kind of a local, um, agency here to help, uh, starting, uh, businesses starting off, which is helpful. Um, and, uh, but you know, it was also when we started, we had, for some reason, we thought that, you know, Elaine and myself, along with like one staff person would be enough to, to do everything. And that included making chocolate and running the kind of front of house, you know, handling, uh, sale, you know, the, the, uh, just, uh, the sales there at the retail shop. And, uh, you know, we really quickly realized that was, that was kind of ridiculous, um, you know, as I mentioned, our first, uh, you know, especially like the first six months, uh, you know, one or both of us were, were there in the shop until, you know, three or four in the morning, uh, you know, trying to get more bars made. And, you know, we, we still today, you know, uh, hand wrap, you know, all of the bars that we make, uh, but we have, you know, we, we now have staff that, you know, help do all of that. Um, and so, I, you know, there's, there's all of the stress of, you know, finances and, you know, working crazy hours, uh, combined with the fact that we were a married couple and had two kids, it was, you know, it was a stressful, uh, uh, first couple of years. And, you know, as we've grown and, um, been able to, you know, bring on, uh, staff to help, uh, both with making chocolate and, and, uh, and, and even, you know, doing wholesale, you know, we have a, a sales, um, uh, associate now who helps, you know, manage our wholesale accounts and, shipping it, it things have gotten easier uh over time but uh you know starting a, a business from scratch like this was was definitely a challenge and i mean so you guys both came back i mean both of you work for then the the business is that correct or do did one of you guys go back to work or or both of you sort of dove into this and this is both would you because you mentioned working till 3 a.m. in the morning. So I'm imagining that both of you work on the business. Yeah, we both have been full-time on the business uh, from the beginning. Um, when we first came back, I mean, I was fortunate. The, the work that I had done in the past was, was kind of political campaign work, and I was 
fortunate that I was able to, um, you know, when we first came back from Costa Rica, kind of as we were working on the business, I, you know, did some part-time consulting work. So we was able to, you know, pay some of the bills as we were getting everything in order. And, you know, there was a long process of, you know, developing our packaging for the bars, um, working on recipes, uh, doing the build out of our, our space at Krog, um, you know, all of that. Uh, so we were sort of juggling both of those things and, and we had a little bit of income, uh, coming in at the time. Uh, uh but we're, we've definitely both been, uh, working on it, uh, full time, uh, since, since its inception. And I mean, so this is pretty awesome, right? And and you've got the thing going, but I mean, you had to develop your own packaging and uh, you mentioned wrapping your own bars. So, I mean, where did the ideas come to the creativity? And tell us a little bit about that because now you've got the business, you've got the bars, you've got the idea, you started it, you guys are both working full time. But now you've got to also figure out the packaging, you know, and and how to sell it and how to retail it and, and build a website. I mean, what was all of that like? Yeah, we we knew early on that you know our price point for our chocolate was going to be higher than what um, you know most Americans are used to paying for chocolate. I mean, it's, it's we're, we're totally in line with kind of the what people pay for craft chocolate, but it's most people have still not been exposed to craft bean to bar chocolate. And so um, we knew that we needed to uh, do a couple of things. One was sort of tell the story of why our chocolate costs more. And so uh, a lot of that was in thinking about our shop. And, and that was one of the reasons why we wanted to make the chocolate right there in the shop so people could see the process and we could, we, you know, uh, our front of house staff does a lot of education on, you know, sort of the stuff that we already talked about, where chocolate comes from, where the cow grows, what the process is. And um, that's a lot of value add that people start to understand. There's so much more that goes into chocolate than what they realize and, and that we're paying more attention to the beans that we get and the quality and what we pay the farmers. And so um, that that is helpful to explain why our chocolate is, you know, nine nine fifty a bar. Um, and then the other piece was our packaging. We really felt like, um, you know, this is probably for most people, it's not going to be a chocolate they're going to eat every day. And so we wanted the, um, packaging to feel like this is, you know, sort of a, a special thing and it's a good gift to give. You know, if you're going to a dinner party, you could buy a bottle of wine or you could also bring a couple of bars of, uh, uh, you know, single origin uh, chocolate as well. And so we spent a lot of time, uh, you know, uh, really focused uh, on the look of the shop and, and, and that, and then also uh, our, our initial kind of wrappers and the feel of the paper. Um, we worked with a local uh, graphic designer who, who, uh, you know, came up with our, uh, we worked with on the logo and, and the kind of illustrations and graphics on the packaging. Uh, we wanted, we also, you know, our, our name Chocolato comes from um, the original kind of Aztec word for uh, how they consume chocolate. It actually means, uh, the chocolate means bitter and otl means water. It was bitter water. They didn't have chocolate bars. They would grind cacao down into water and cornmeal, and they would have peppers and spices. And uh, But it was a really important uh beverage uh, in, in, uh, uh, in uh, 
to Aztecs and, and uh, cacao beans were used as currency. And so, and then the, we liked the, the fact that the ATL was the end of the word. And so we developed, we, we really wanted this idea of kind of bridging this gap between the people who are growing cacao in, in Central and South America or, or Africa or wherever they are in the world and, and the work that they're doing in, in their lives. And then the people here in the U.S. Uh, that we would be selling the chocolate to and wanting to provide them with um, good, clean, high-quality chocolate. And, and kind of, we like the idea of these two communities and us kind of being a bridge between the two communities. And so we designed our logo with kind of the, it's chocolate, but we sort of highlight the ATL at the end of the word. And we thought that was, uh, although it's really challenging for everybody to pronounce, uh, we, we thought it was a, a um, good kind of bridge between the two worlds. And, and so then our packaging design uh, focused, uh, we have kind of our single origin bars that have um, the designs on them are very focused on the cacao tree. So they're kind of an abstract drawing of cacao trees. And then our flavor inclusion bars are um, kind of more focused on community. And so they are uh, this kind of line drawings of the neighborhood that's actually right around us that we, that we kind of live and work in uh, actually includes a little drawing of the Crock Street Market warehouse building that we're in. And there's a water tower on the corner and some of the houses in the neighborhood. And so um, we just spent a lot, you know, it was a, seven or eight months process to uh, work through uh, the wrapper design because we felt like that was uh, an important thing. And, and all, the other thing we wanted to do was include a lot of colors in the packaging. A lot of chocolate bars, especially at that time, I think even still it's changed a little bit, but there's a lot of kind of browns and beiges and, and, and kind of things. And we really thought one of the things that was cool about cacao that most people don't know is that you have these really beautiful bright colored pods and we wanted to um, kind of bring that color to the packaging so a lot of the, the our bars are all different colors and they're but they're really inspired off of uh, colors that actual cacao pods are in the wild and we also thought that would kind of differentiate us you know sitting on a shelf next to other uh, chocolate bars so it was really a two-pronged approach on the physical, creating a good, a good physical space uh, to be able to educate and tell the story of chocolate and what we were doing, and then uh, focusing on the, on the packaging and, and you know being able to both get people's attention but have it be meaningful uh, packaging that um, you know people uh, felt like was a was something special. And I think it's awesome because I don't think people realize. I mean, even with coffee, people don't realize the actual different climates, the different geographical locations, the different varieties of the the coffee plants, but it's just like the same as a cocoa tree. Like there's so many varieties and they grow differently in each climate and soil and all that. And it gives different pl- flavor profiles and, and texture. So I love the idea of a single origin because it really concentrates on that particular area's flavor. And then the the pods being different colors, I didn't know that, but it makes sense how to tie it all together as part of your guys' story. And I think that's just so incredible that you guys are doing it. And, and the part that I really love is that with this bean to bar movement, as you talked about, um, there is this caring, like they're starting to happen in coffee. Like they want the farmers to do well. You know, there is too many middlemen, uh, Often the farmer's the one who profits the least but does all the work. 
they're, you know, being sustainable or better for the land or better for the people that goes along with it because they're not having to cut as many corners to, to do it. You know, they're fermenting the beans properly. It's not having to go industrial process like you talked about, which is just so cool. And I think in food and beverages across the world, we're seeing much more of this as more entrepreneurs like yourself get into the business, um, that, that streamlining process and making sure that everyone profits is a good thing. I mean, in the United States, it's the same thing. I mean, we have so many middlemen in our food system. Well, one food is way more expensive than it needs to be. And two is the farmers often make such little money. They have to be subsidized by the government. And so it's not really an efficient system because everyone in the middle marks it up a hundred percent and they're the ones just passing it through and not really growing it there. They, they touch it the least amount and, and the consumer is willing to pay for it because what else are they going to do? But we don't realize how much the middlemen in the system actually mark up the prices, do whatever. And it's exactly what you guys are doing. There should be, you know, to farm to, you know, a, a middle aggregator where in your case it's fermenting, but the same with food. And then from there to production and then production directly to the consumer. And in some cases it can go production to market to consumer, but that's still five steps it takes. I mean, think about that. That's an efficient system, but yet it still takes five steps. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the thing that's encouraging, you know, as you mentioned that there's so much more focus on transparency uh, now, and it's, 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 I think I feel like it's twofold. It's one on what's in the food and like, is this actually good for me? And then the other is where did this food come from and what are the kind of the social and environmental impacts that are, you know, happening because of, of this product. And, um, you know, that's, that's one of the other things, um, uh, just to throw out another kind of cool thing about cacao is that, um, it's, uh, you know, a lot, as I said, you know, grown within 20 degrees of the equator. And it's actually, uh, one of the guys that we work with in, uh, in South America, he, he's really, uh, driven to work, uh, on it because it's a, as like a rainforest preservation tool. Because what you, what you'll find, you'll go down on Amazon, uh, the, the place in Peru that we buy beans from is kind of the, uh, upper Amazon, uh, basin area. And, um, you'll see the rainforest that's been clear cut for pineapple or banana or palm oil and cacao actually grows best under a canopy. And so it's not, you're not maintaining, you know, virgin rainforest, but you are maintaining other trees other than just cacao. And then the cacao itself is providing a lot more foliage and cover for and and habitat for birds and for other animals than something like uh, pineapple. Um, and you know, whereas pineapple, they, they basically have to go and clear cut, plant pineapple and then the soil is completely exhausted after three years and they go and clear cut another area and plant more pineapple. Cacao is a much more sustainable, environmentally friendly, uh, agricultural product, uh, than, than a lot of the other stuff that happens. Uh, and one of the other big things actually in the rainforest in the Amazon is uh, clear cutting for, for ranching as well. So. Um, you know, if we can pay farmers more for their beans and give them more incentive to grow cacao versus some of these other crops, then um, it can actually end up being uh, a useful uh, rainforest uh, preservation tool as well. Yeah, and I love that. And actually, when I was in, I went to graduate school at the University of North Carolina in this program called the One MBA, and we had a partner uh, school. It was a, 
a collaborative of five universities to do this uh, one MBA program. Now it's actually University of Miami instead of University of North Carolina. That's the North American partner. But we were in Brazil, and one of the things mm. that is going on down there is how to keep the rainforest from being plowed down at the rate that it's basically being plowed down and, and turned into farmland, like you said, or or ranch land. And how do you have products that are in there? And one of the companies we work with, they were trying to figure out how to make sure that they put in products and, and had things growing in the rainforest that one complemented the rainforest, but they were turning it into makeup and, and cosmetics, uh, all natural makeup and cosmetics. Yeah. But you're talking about the same thing is how do we actually work with the land and how do we actually work with the forest and preserve it and, and keep mother nature's cycle intact and still make it profitable for everyone. And I think that that's one of the most amazing things that we're seeing. And that's the only way to sort of reverse this agricultural industry because we turned agriculture into an industrial business and it's not meant to yeah. be that way. And I know I, I shoot, I have to procure hundreds of thousands of pounds of food in our business. I, I don't do it personally, but we as a business do it. And to get that amount of food, there has to be a farmer growing all of it. But what we're finding is that when a farmer does full circle farming, uh, you know, where the cattle are, are, and we talk about one in the episodes recently, is that the hooves help push the, the, the ground down and help fertilize it and mush things around and aerate it. And that when they naturally graze on it, they're fertilizing it. And if it's the cows that, that go first, and then you have the chickens that sort of eat, eat off of that and then put the nitrogen in the soil, and then the pigs that also come through and eat basically what everything else doesn't want to eat, but also they have a different yeah. type of hoof that also pushes the nitrogen and, and other things into the soil as they're doing that. There's this natural cycle that things can grow. And it's the same thing with the rainforest. I mean, you want to keep the rainforest intact because there's so many things that grow in there. So many benefits from medicinal to, like you said, to, to chocolate, uh, the cocoa tree and the birds and the things like that, as well as obviously one of the largest producers of oxygen um, and removers of carbon dioxide from the environment is the rainforest in South America. So I really think that as entrepreneurs seeing that big picture, it's so important. And the story that you guys are telling, I love it because it, it what you're doing is not only profitable and something that you're doing for a business and you're creating jobs and obviously putting a roof over your head and all the right things in that way, you're actually becoming stewards of the world and stewards of humanity. As we talk about sometimes on this podcast is like, how do we actually better the world as entrepreneurs? And, and do we have the opportunity? And this one sort of, for lack of a better term, fell in your lap and you're kind of accidental entrepreneurs as we call them. But it's not like you haven't had a lot of hard work to get where you are. I don't want people to get confused that there's any overnight successes, but in doing what you're doing, you guys have been granted this ability to help the planet and help other human beings around the world, which I think is so cool. Well, thank you. Um, I, you know, that was really one of the things that attracted us to uh, getting the chocolate. I mean, beyond the fact that we were sort of excited about single origin bars and things, but, you know, from both uh, my background and Elaine's background professionally before had, as I said, 
uh, had been doing some progressive political uh, work and she had been doing international aid and relief work and and we started to see all these all the connections that you just said and we kind of started to see all of those you know how they revolved around chocolate and sourcing cacao and everything and so uh, that was one of the things that got us excited about um, you know starting this business we, we felt like there was an opportunity to uh, you know kind of have some uh, impact on whatever small scale it is in um, in in all of the, the you know kind of the areas that you just mentioned and I mean I mean, do you guys, is it always been a goal of yours to sort of give back? And I mean, you have kids, so I mean, here's a, I'm going to ask a very large question. So that's probably a moving target, but there's the whole, you're giving back as an entrepreneur through being profitable as a business and, and trying to aim to be profitable and grow business. You're giving back to the world, but in that sense, you're making the world a better place for your kids but you're also creating a business for your kids that they can potentially be involved in as time goes on. I mean, so how do you manage yeah, all that I, really? I mean, you have family time <laughs> and it's like, okay, so, but you're, you're doing this great thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we, um, you know, as I, as I mentioned, it, it's gotten a little easier in the last, you know, say two years, you know, the first, Especially the first year and or, or two, uh, really first two years were, were I think really difficult. Uh, really, I mean, just to be frank, I mean, it was challenging our marriage. It was challenging on you know our physical health, like you know just across the board. I mean, um, and you know as we have you know as our revenue has grown, we've been able to you know have more people help us. Um, that has definitely, you know, made a difference in, in the quality of life and, 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 you know, being able to, uh, be present with our, our kids and, and, um, and, uh, not just physically, but, you know, mentally, you know, emotionally present. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's been really important for us. And, you know, we don't, um, you know, we've, we've never really set out to like create a business to pass on to them because we want them to have the, you know, the freedom to choose what they want to do. If they want to, if they decide, hey, I'm really passionate about this and this is what I want to do, then that's that's fine. But um, you know, um, I think the other thing that's been important to us is is you know this idea of sort of you know as I mentioned, community in the places where where the cacao is growing, and then community here in Atlanta. And we've really been focused on wanting to get the business to a place where um, we're able to. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we've always had the goal of treating our employees here, being as conscious, you know, as we are about buying the cacao, having that same uh, attitude with our staff here in Atlanta. And so, actually, we were really excited this year. We were able to, I mean, we're only four and a half years old, and we were able to roll out a um, health insurance plan to uh, our staff here. We we're able to cover 50% of their health insurance. We've got, uh, you know, been able to, um, set up, you know, paid days off for, for staff. And, and, you know, we, um, you know, we, we really, you know, we want to sort of add to, we, we want our staff here to be able to afford to live in the city, which is more expensive, um, you know, than, than, you know, out, outside the, the perimeter here in Atlanta and, uh, to be able to, um, you know, have a quality of life. And, and, um, and, and so, uh, we're, you know, long-term we're, we're focused on, uh, you know, wanting to be able to kind of continue to hopefully, add benefits and things to our staff plan here and, and really have a holistic approach to the business um, and, and, uh, and, and how we kind of treat 
just everybody from our customers to our staff to the people that we're buying beans from. We also, you know, where we're buying our supplies, our packaging and, and things like that. Actually, one of the really cool things, we just switched our paper over for our, our wrappers to a, a French paper company. That's the name of the company. I think it's actually based in Michigan. It's called French Paper Company, and it's an old family paper mill that uh, been running off of hydroelectric power, that, uh, their own hydroelectric generator since uh, uh, for like 85 years or something like that. Uh, they're, um, they actually produce so much power that they pump, they, they're 100% uh, uh, provide enough power uh, for 100% of their factory and then even feed power back into the grid to help uh, uh, power the, the town uh, near the paper mill. Um, and it's a 100% recycled paper and sustainable. And so, um, yeah, we, we try to just think about the whole business as a, you know, we, we kind of left this world of, of politics and aid and relief work. And, but we, we wanted to use the business kind of as a tool to do some of the things that we were working on in kind of a policy or kind of NGO type of way before. And now kind of try to do some of those things through, through the business that we're building. So that's, that's kind of the thing that keeps us really, you know, kind of inspired and fired up about kind of our, our day-to-day, you know, work. And, and I love that as well, because I think, um, you know, and Deborah and I were big donators and we donate money, but one of the things that as entrepreneurs, I think is the most important. And it's something I realized being in grad school and, and traveling all over the world and, and watching businesses and everything like it's one thing and i'm going to use the mosquito net example because i always use it but it's one thing to manufacture mosquito nets here and then ship it over to say africa or south america but it's another thing to give them the ability to manufacture their own mosquito nets and create an economy so they can sustain themselves and um, and yeah. obviously you can still profit from it if you teach them how to do it and take a piece of the business, but also give them ownership. And that's basically what you're doing is you're giving these farmers ownership, not, you know, not directly through stock, but in your business because they're growing the cacao um, pods and, and beans for you guys that you turn into chocolate. But in a way, they're all stakeholders in your business. And they're getting the benefit of owning their own businesses and creating their own economies there, which really is a huge benefit to them economically in their communities and, and helps sort of start raising, you know, these third world countries, I should say, uh, I guess that's still probably the proper term into a, you know, starting to move into a more modern nation through creating these economies because the farmer needs support. He's going to need an accountant and he's going to, he supplies with a broker or or supports a uh, co-op, as you said, and they need employees and it starts creating all this job. So you, us buying chocolate from you, um, creates this downward trend where there's this group of stakeholders because you're a small business and, and care about where the beans are coming from. It's actually really creating this lineage all the way down to the farmer of better practices and better econ- better economic development, as well as building economies in their communities, which is just really amazing, you know, and it, it's the whole thing. They don't need retirement plans. They need businesses and entrepreneurism and, and things there. And, and don't get me wrong. I think, we need to help and, and, and NGOs are an important part of the system. But I think one of the coolest things you guys are 
doing is really creating businesses in these communities through what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, until we create some sort of new economic, you know, worldwide economic system, um, there's, you know, I, I, we, you know, I think Elaine and I both felt like the, the kind of the, the, the world was not on a sustainable course. And I don't think that we're the solution to that necessarily, but, but we're at least, uh, I, I think we have all got to be conscious of and aware of, you know, the social environmental, you know, uh, impact of, of what we're doing. And, and so we've, we've really, tr- you know, this is kind of the way that we've figured out to, um, to try to do our part and, and to, you know, that is at least kind of gratifying to us and, and, and makes us, you know, uh, sleep a little better at night. So. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, uh, it's no different than small businesses in America cr- actually create most of the jobs and employ most of the people in the world. We see big numbers for big corporations, but that's not where most of the employment is. And it's the same thing here. It's a lot of people and small businesses need to make the same decisions you're making, even if it's just, you know, procuring locally. And for cocoa, obviously, it's not something that can be procured locally because we can't grow cocoa trees um in the united states that i know of i mean maybe there's a way to do it in greenhouses and things like that i'm not sure aquaponics and hydroponics but i can't imagine it be efficient as it is in in central south america and yeah there are some cacao trees in hawaii um uh and and then there are a few in like south florida but not enough to actually produce anything i actually have uh, about 10 trees growing in our office here uh, from uh, beans that we've brought back from our trips to Peru and Nicaragua uh, in particular uh, and Costa Rica. And, uh, and uh, they, they, I, they can't be outside during winter. We're fortunate to have some really big windows. Uh, and so they, uh, they're able to kind of uh, grow here in the winter time, or at least sort of not die in the winter time. And then they kind of grow a little bit spring and summertime. But yeah, this is, uh, there's nowhere really outside of Hawaii in the U.S. that produces any uh, cacao crop. Amazing. It's, uh, it's awesome. And uh, I think, you know, maybe there's an entrepreneur out there somewhere that, that'll figure out how to grow them indoors on, on a larger rate. So, I mean, do you know off the top of your head how much chocolate, I guess, I guess let's go all the way to the end, comes off of one tree? I mean, ha- is it like a pound? I mean, once you get all the beans off a tree, you know, roast them you know, or ferment them, roast them, turn them into chocolate. I mean, yeah. how much actually does a one tree produce? There's not really any super good measurement for that. The, the thing that folks will say that's just a really rough approximation is that like one pod, I mean, these are pretty big pods. If you, if you, as I mentioned, if you or your your audience want to, you know, Google cacao pods or cacao tree images, um, but one pod can pro- is, can produce enough seeds for to make one bar of chocolate. Um, and you know, a tree will produce. You know, that that can also vary how many pods will produce on a tree. Um, but you know, it takes uh, farmers. Uh, you know, the way that it works, though, as I mentioned, is you sort of have to reach a critical mass to. Uh, of, of pods and, and seeds and pulp to be able to do a good fermentation process. And so um, even if you produce a couple of pods, that doesn't mean you're going to be able to make it into a chocolate bar. You've got to really, uh, you know, um, 
you know, reach like a, you know, a quarter ton or so to kind of fill one, um, you know, fermentation box. Uh, and so, uh, uh to, to be able to do a good ferment. So, so it's definitely not, uh, not an easy uh, process. It's pretty cool. So would you say that your motivation and inspiration then goes back to your guys' roots before you started the business and, and the NGOs and, and what you were doing in politics and things like that and trying to change and make a difference? Or is it, I mean, what really motivates and inspires you guys every day, you and Elaine? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely that. I mean, we, we did want to, you know, um, work for ourselves and create our own thing. And, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I think we both, you know, um, like the idea of building something and creating something and, and, um, uh, you know, Elaine can be very focused on projects like, like start a project and kind of see it to completion. And, and I really like, you know, kind of starting things from scratch and having kind of a, uh, you know, my, my brain will just start going in all sorts of different directions of things that, you know, things we can do and, 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 uh, directions we could go. And so I think that was like, you know, that was appealing to us being able to kind of follow our own, our own path and, and sort of go where, you know, where our, uh, you know, sort of inspiration took us. Um, also, as you mentioned, you know, being able to have kind of that, that social, you know, uh, impact, uh, with something, you know, coming from our, our previous work. Uh, so I think, you know, and then actually, honestly, you know, the third thing was just the idea of, uh, you know, Elaine had, had done Peace Corps after college in, in Africa and Malawi. And, you know, I did study abroad in East Africa and we traveled together in Central America. And just the idea of having a job where we could travel the world to different places um, uh, to meet farmers in random locations, even that, you know, was appealing. So it's kind of, you know, all three of those things that played a role in it. I mean, that's such a cool part of it, right? Is you're getting to meet all these people around the world and travel to all these different places, but also make a difference doing it. I mean, I mean, Deborah and I travel quite a bit and obviously we travel for work and, and make differences and create jobs and, and try to do exactly what you're doing just on a different scale. We're trying to just do it in the United States is create that more sustainable market where, we deal directly with the farmers, procure directly from them, so there's less middlemen, so the farmers make more money, we make more money, and then the consumer pays less. And so, and, and trying to streamline that process and make it more efficient, and actually in the United States, we throw away a lot of food, we plow a lot of under in the fields, as well as throw, let a lot rot in the supermarket. So how to make that more efficient and and, and things like that yeah. and grow more varieties and where we aren't throwing them away and things like that and how to deal with that problem, particularly there in Georgia. But one of the coolest things that's happening is you guys get to travel and do it all over the world. And where we travel, when we go around the world, it's usually for fun, which is not a bad thing, but to be able to sort of interlock all of it and, and have an excuse to go and a reason to go is just such a cool thing, not to mention the relationships you're building and, and people that you're meeting all over the world. I mean, that's got to be an incredible experience. Yeah, it's, it is a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's very different from, um, you know, we'll go on a, you know, family trip somewhere and, and, you know, when you're sort of going on vacation or, you know, the tourist, um, which I love. It's great, but it's a, it's a cool experience to, to go somewhere and you end up in a random 
town that you would never, you know, otherwise visit, but you're, you're going there with a purpose and you're actually, you know, uh, uh, involved in kind of people's lives there in a way that, you know, you don't, um, you know, don't get that opportunity, uh, you know, when you're, when you're traveling for purely for fun. And so that's, that's a, you know, that's an exciting, uh, fun thing for us to do. And so as we begin to wrap things up, Matt, if, um, you know, what are some of the things, I mean, you weren't an entrepreneur, you guys weren't entrepreneurs before, but what are some of the things you've learned now that, you know, I wouldn't say you wish you knew before because then you wouldn't have learned them and be where you are. But in a way, you know, if you could tell someone else some lessons that you learned or go back and tell you some things that you feel that you could have wish you would have known then, um, you know, what would they be as a business owner and an entrepreneur? Oh, that's tough. Uh, you know, like, I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, I kind of think everybody has their own path to, to this, you know, and, and so I don't think there's a necessarily a right or a wrong path. I mean, I, you know, there's, uh, a, a part of me that would say, you know, I wish, you know, we had started earlier, you know, uh, when we were younger and didn't have kids, it probably would have, you know, there are probably things that would have been easier, but then on the flip side, we, you know, when we started, Elaine and I both had a lot of professional experience. And so we brought skills to the table that we wouldn't have had, you know, if we'd started when we were 25 or something like that. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that there's uh, a right path other than, you know, uh, trying. <laughs> and, and, and um, I, I do think the one thing that we've, we've done right is um, we really commit something when we when we decide it's what we want to do and so we we sort of once we were like this is what we want to do we want to start the shawl company it was a hundred percent that's what we were going to do um we didn't really leave ourselves any wiggle room at all um we signed our lease at crog street uh, market before we had ever sold a chocolate bar to anybody you know we were making bars at home for family and friends but we didn't have packaging we didn't have anything and so we, we really had like we were locked in you know both financially and, and, and mentally and everything else, uh, and, and, and really kind of committed a hundred percent to it. And so I, you know, I think that's the, for us, I think that was the key, whatever we lacked in, uh, in, in, you know, uh, knowledge or experience in other areas was, you know, we, we just made up for by, um, committing and, and then working really hard. And we got lucky. I mean, the other thing is, you know, it also takes, you know, luck and, and help, from, you know, family and friends, we had people help us, you know, uh, one of the, when we first started, we were, uh, doing some farmer's markets before we had actually opened our shop and, and, you know, our first, uh, farmer's market, we, um, had friends over, were helping us, you know, wrap bars at like two o'clock in the Marine before the, before the market. And, and, you know, you, you've got to have, uh, you know, that kind of support network, um, definitely helps. So. Yeah, I think that having and, and support. Last thing I would, I guess the last thing I would add to that is is you also have to ask for help. I mean, you you really, um, I think a lot of times people are hesitant to, um, to ask, and um, we definitely ask people to help. <laughs> you know, and uh, and and people are happy. Uh, generally, people are happy to help you. Uh, and and um, you know, this is, uh, I think starting a business, at least for us, was not something we would have been able to have just done, you know, purely on our own without uh, help from, from family and friends. Yeah, I don't think um, many people 
I think that's one of the things people struggle with is asking for help or asking for mentorship or being vulnerable enough to say that I'm not succeeding at this. How can I get some help from someone? I mean, I definitely did it earlier on in my entrepreneurial experience. I wanted to do it all myself and it took me a long time before I realized just yeah. ask someone, just ask someone for help. People yeah. are willing to do it. People are willing to mentor you, but I mean, you just, sometimes you have to do the work. You have to be the willing to want to be vulnerable and ask the questions and admit you don't know and admit that, you know, that you need help. I mean, that's the hardest part, right? Yeah. It's being that vulnerable position, but people love doing it and being involved in, in part of a community or, or helping people grow. And, and I mean, it's exactly what you're doing with the farmers and, and all the countries that you're involved in for the cocoa trees is, I mean, you're helping them and you're helping them grow and become, you know, better entrepreneurs themselves and better farmers and things like that. So I think that's really cool. And I think on a full circle that even as the entrepreneur that's helping things go downstream, we have to be willing to go upstream as well to get advice and, and help and, a, you know, whatever it is that we need from someone else that may help us in our future. Yeah. So Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast and, and what you guys are doing is great. And I look forward if you guys are willing to, to have you back on in like 10 to 12 months and continue to tell your story and your journey and maybe dive more into your adventures across the world with going to see the cocoa trees and things like that. Cause I'd really think we could just do a podcast episode on that alone and about the farmers and really dive into some of that. So just give you some literally food for thought um, about maybe doing a second episode here and, and, you know, 10 to 12 months, because I want to continue to tell your story and promote you guys. But I'd really love to dive into your relationships and your travels um, around the world in the, with the cocoa trees and the cocoa farmers. Yeah, that sounds great. And maybe we, we can get Elaine on uh, next time. She's, uh, she, she could be uh, more eloquent than me. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to to continue to do this with you guys and promote you guys. And I really love what you're doing. So if I can help promote the business and the better farming and and what you guys are doing and and helping your own employees and and creating jobs and businesses and propel your businesses through the podcast, you know, I'm all for that because I think what you guys are doing for the food world and for jobs and economies around the world is important. And while one company can't make a difference telling your story and getting other people to do similar things I think can make a difference so thank you again well, thanks for having us on I appreciate it and if everyone likes what's going on here first off I want to thank everyone in the audience for listening in we're in 42 countries around the world right now uh, we have tens of thousands of downloads and it continues to grow uh, every day and we continue to go into more and more countries every day, which is pretty awesome. I didn't know something like this could do that and, and touch so many people's lives around the world and so many people were interested in the stories of food, beverage and nutrition entrepreneurs and wanting to be entrepreneurs themselves and and a lot of people didn't want to be alone. I mean, they don't want to be alone in their journey and hearing that you're not alone uh, that there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are going through similar struggles or trying to build businesses or trying to grow their business or like in this case, um, making a difference in the world through their entrepreneurial endeavors. 
you know, it, you, it can work and people do succeed and it just takes the willingness to do so. So thank you for everyone who's listening in and supporting it and, and passing it on and sharing it. Um, if you want to be on the podcast, you can reach out to me. It's Justin at thefoodentrepreneurs.com. And you can reach out to us on Instagram and Facebook at Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs. Thank you for everyone for listening in and have a great day.